Welcome to the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. My name is Hisham Azuz. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Caroline Vogt, who is a director at XBeyond Search and Selection. Caroline has worked within the recruitment industry since 2000, and in this time, she has consistently accelerated her career going from consultant all the way up to recruitment manager to more recently with XP on Search and Selection when she became a director in 2014. Now, throughout this period, Caroline has always worked within the food and FMCG markets, supporting businesses across the whole of the UK. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Sorry to, I might be giving a bit away of your age there, saying how long you've been worked in the, the industry, <laughs> but... I honestly think that's uh, absolutely amazing that you've worked within the same world, the same markets for the past, yeah, 20 years. I think that's, I'm, I'm really excited to uncover this. Well, time's flown, actually. I can't believe it's been that long, but I think it uh, perhaps shows that if you find a find a market that you love and a sector that really works for you, then it's a great place to be. Absolutely. So, where we always like to start is, is the million pound question. In your opinion, what characteristics and traits do you think make up a highly successful recruitment consultant? Gosh, if we had the answer to that, we'd all be millionaires, wouldn't we? <laughs> I think the recruitment is such a challenging job because you have to wear so many hats. But I think there's two things that really ring through for me. I think first is you have to have empathy. You have to be able to put yourself in people's shoes and you have to be able to really build relationships with others who are probably very different to you in terms of personality, circumstances, etc. The second thing, and I think this is a trait throughout recruitment, is you've got to be resilient. You've got to be able to pick yourself up and carry on even when everything falls apart, and it does. But the great thing is that I think if you stick with it, you keep doing the right things, it comes good in the end. So I think that resilient streak has to be prevalent in anybody who's going to be successful in recruitment. Mm. Do you think empathy, do you think that was important when you started your career? think so do you think it's become more and more important over time or just interested if you still feel like that was a important trait or a trait that you found in the successful people around you when you first started working in recruitment yes for two reasons so I think first and foremost you have to be able to empathize with others and I've watched those be successful who have been able to and those who've been perhaps very inward looking and not so empathetic with others they can achieve great sales results but it falls apart in the end. So I think that's that's really important. I think the other thing as well is having empathy for your colleagues. So actually being able to show empathy with others when maybe it's not going so well for them or even when it's going great for them and not so great for you. So I think being able to associate with others and really offer that support and that, that listening ear gives you some really great skills actually because what that then translates into is somebody who can really listen to what candidates are looking for what clients are looking for I hear all the time from certainly from candidates mostly but also from clients is the recruiter is only interested in their agenda is this candidate right for the role and if they're right for the role we'll push them forwards. If they're almost right for the role, we'll still push them forwards. And and you see in time a lot of dropouts from processes because actually you didn't really listen to what the person wanted. You didn't get on their agenda and see really where their skills lay, their motivations lay. So I think it, it goes really deep, that empathy piece. Yeah, no, I agreed. I think early on, one of the sort of learnings you have to, te- like it can be easy at the beginning to like, listen to what you want to hear do you know what I mean I think there's one thing being on their agenda but you can also it can come across that you have your own agenda but then you can also just be really focused on finding things that suit your agenda as well and and you know this industry is so KPI'd and if you're KPI'd on the number of CVs you send across you find a great CV you want to be able to submit that candidate for the job you've got to make sure that candidate actually wants to go for that job so I think you've got to just find that line between Yes, selling a role and presenting a role in, in the right way to a candidate, but also appreciate what their requirements are as well. Absolutely. So a lot to unpack here. A couple of obviously key areas that I want to go over with you, but just, just to set the scene here. So in your 
yeah, 20 years of working in recruitment. Across that time, you worked for two companies. It looks like, obviously, yeah, first company, like you've done in your most, obviously, the company you work for now, you've progressed your career. So I guess just, just the first thing I'll be a bit interested in to hear and just touch on, how would you describe the very first part of your career of interest. What do you remember about your first year in recruitment or the first two years? Was it really difficult? Did you actually find it quite easy to adapt to the uh, career in recruitment and the market that you're serving? Like how, how do you remember your early days in recruitment out of interest? Early days in recruitment were very different to what recruitment is now. So it wasn't LinkedIn. We had one email address in the office wow. and CVs were sent via a fax machine and you used to photocopy the CV onto headed paper and then put it in a fax machine. It, it was that crazy. It was that crazy. I've heard that before. The company I joined, there's the guy that started, it was X Hayes and then um, his first hire was a senior consultant who was ex Hayes as well, and they'd been in the game for a while. And I remember them saying that they they used to be in Hayes, like the one email inbox that people, everyone used, or like a team used. That's crazy. So okay, so it's very different. Very different. My first job in recruitment was as a researcher, so I was carrying out all the headhunt activity for the team. So I learned very quickly how to do desk research, so how to get names from switchboards or other people within organisations, how to find out information about people without speaking to them, and then ultimately how to contact them. Um, and again, all through a landline, phoning switchboards, phoning all kinds of people within organisations to get information. And actually, a lot of taking home phone numbers home with me and ringing people from my home phone in the evening, that's, that's what we did. What I learnt very early on from that is, yes, resilience, but actually learning to fit in with your market so I used to go into the office at 7am it's the best time to catch people because receptionists weren't on switchboards um, you could normally get through to direct lines people were in their office having the morning coffee they weren't in meetings they weren't on other calls you could catch them really easily and they really appreciated that out of hours touch so I got a huge amount of success actually from from doing that and built up some some great relationships with with candidates which were just that relationships. There's nothing digital about it. And I, th- I mean, I was very successful at that and then quickly was promoted into more of a client-facing role. My first week doing business development, I had a an industry publication. Uh, for what it's worth, it was Food Manufacture Magazine. And I was ad canvassing, literally working through every advert in that, in that magazine until I got a job. It took me till Friday morning of that week. I got my first job on. And that gave me such grounding for actually this is what the job is about. I'd done the approaching candidates piece who, you know, were headhunt targets. I'd started on my business development journey and I just quickly fell into that rhythm of jobs, candidates, interviews, ultimately then placements. And it grew it grew from there. So those were the first couple of years, really very KPI focused. But what I had around me was a really supportive team. I had some great people within that team who, who mentored me, helped me. Those are the days when we did a lot of miles, getting in the car and driving around the country, seeing people. So many hours actually spent in the car with colleagues, learning from them, asking them questions, watching them in meetings. So I was really lucky to have a really great team of people around me who taught me a lot. Okay, right. I'm keen to get practical with you. Okay, so I'm really interested in like sort of bringing this forward now and asking you around like what headhunting looks like for you now, because I'm really interested. But what I want to ask you is, how did you ensure that you sort of wasn't overwhelmed early on out of interest? So like, as I'm sure you've seen, like a lot of people early on in their recruitment career, is like they can sort of have the self-dialogue that they're sort of not good enough to speak to senior stakeholders, hiring managers, because they're like, oh, I, haven't, I haven't got enough experience. Have I got enough experience to speak to these people? So I guess I was just curious, like what... What was your mindset? Like you you said it quite like it was quite, I don't know, you sounded quite natural when you were saying it. Like, yeah, I just was canvassing. I was calling ads or whatever. Like, I don't know. What was the the mindset of the self-dialogue when you did that to ensure that you didn't let what was going on get the better of you or sort of get into that potential mindset of like a lot of people do? I think it's that am I worthy piece, isn't it? Am I worthy of speaking to somebody at director level? And I think perhaps initially... I did question that. 
I think a thing I was doing was because my candidate base when I was doing a lot of search work and headhunting was at director level. I'd already developed a rapport with people at that level. So I think what I quickly realised was actually it's about what you offer. I didn't feel as though I had to prove myself. And bear in mind, LinkedIn didn't exist in those days. So, I mean, we're, we're talking 2001, 2002 here, hadn't even launched. Nobody could kind of check me out. So as long as I sounded credible, I felt like I had the right to speak to these people. And secondly, actually, it goes about learning your market. As long as you understand and you've taken that time to learn what the jobs are, to learn what the acronyms are, to ask the right questions. And you do that by trial and error. But listen to the people around you. What questions are they asking? How do they phrase things? What works for them? I used to write it all down. And then I'd have a little toolkit of actually, this is what I can say to this person. Or I quite liked how that colleague had phrased a particular offer that was maybe a little bit lowballed, but actually got across the line. So I just soaked it all up, really. I think it's a really different place now within the digital field because you can quite transparently see what people have done where they've been there's no hiding is there but I think what I also took into account was I was learning from really well qualified people from talented people and I was doing well so I must have been doing something right so that gave me more confidence to uh, to spur myself on. So what what I'm keen to just get into really quickly because of the way that you described what you did early on and where you had success. If we could bring it to more recent times, talk to us about so headhunting. Real, obviously, main as as we said before we started recording this. Like, yeah, continue to find that real common challenge at the moment is yeah not having enough candidates for the live jobs people have. Right. So, what does Caroline's headhunting approach look like now? Is it something you still actively do? Is it now just gone completely digital where you're you're taking what you did like you used to do, but now on like in-mails and stuff like that? Do you still do some of the switchboard stuff? Like how does headhunting look like for you now? All of the above. So okay. digital has obviously given us huge amounts of capability, as we all know. The thing I've learned about digital is to make sure that your information is correct because if you're specifically relying on stuff like LinkedIn, you don't know that people are still in the same jobs. They might not have updated their LinkedIn profile because candidates don't live on LinkedIn like we do. So you need to make sure that your information is correct first and foremost. And make approach and an approach really personal. Tie in something about that candidate or the job that they are currently doing or the company that they work for actually relevant to why you're reaching out to them. Um, so I've learned that impersonal approaches are only genuinely accepted by people who really want an inbound approach if you want to reach out to somebody you need to make it personal break that down a bit for us so because you hear that a lot right you need to personalize your message so when you said try and look for things on a linkedin profile job or whatever like what are the things that you look at that could help you personalize that outreach out of interest could is it things like seeing the university that they went to is it like maybe part of the industry groups they're part of because there's there will be common things won't there Obviously, it'd be nuanced to your market, but what are the typical things that you look at that helps you personalise out of interest to get practical on that? So in the food and FMCG space, I suppose we're quite lucky because we all know the products that we're that, that candidates are generally dealing with. So it's about picking out some commonality. So if we're looking for somebody with experience within a particular food technology, for example, we'll look for that that theme potentially within the profile of a candidate or the companies that they've worked for and weave that into our approach that's probably the easiest second is about customers so if it's a candidate who's worked a lot with the major grocery retailers or online retailers again weave that in if there's some commonality between you may know somebody who's worked at tesco this role includes a lot of that so weave that in going back as far as university depends on how advanced they are in their career because for some people it's quite a long time ago there is also an element of tying in and again this is how well you know your client is tying elements of the client's background to the candidate's background and again create that weave with some commonality between them and the client I think you guys will get along well because you've both previously worked for x person or you've worked within this organization so it's just using your brain a bit it takes longer it's a bit more effort but it definitely pays off I think also if you take the time to record either a voice message or even a video for somebody and actually tailor that approach to them then I think that also 
it sets you apart and that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to stand out in and amongst the noise that they're getting probably all of the time on various digital channels you've got to make your proposition certainly more favorable than somebody else's talk to us about the video approach a lot of people would be scared to do that if i was in your market and you used to send me a video outreach what's your typical framework on that out of interest are you mainly focusing talking about them you're again trying to sort of weave in the familiarities rather than going hey Hisham I've got this job would you be able to talk about it straight away what's the mindset towards the video outreach out of interest I'm sure you're continuing to perfect and improve but what do you try and get across this podcast is proudly partnered with Vincherry the recruitment operating system for your front middle and back office So I recently recorded a podcast with James Layton from the Anderson James Group, which will be out really soon. And as part of our conversation, we got into the topic of the best tools that he's invested in so far in his business journey. And guess what? Vincherry was up there and also Sourcebreaker was. But in this very short snippet, you're going to hear why James is so happy to be a Vincherry customer. And look, Who's better to tell you about their product and why you should be considering Vincherry as your operating system partner than their customers themselves? Here's what James had to say. We implemented Vincherry right in the heat of lockdown. We decided that it was the right time. The old system that we used was clunky. I'm a real, real, real believer of Vincherry as a system. I must have recommended 20 people to Vincherry over the years because I think they're going to change the game. And I can say that wholeheartedly having used Bullhorn and another product I can say that Vincherry is number one in that world for a growing recruitment business because it's intuitive, it's got intelligence suites, it's got everything that you probably need to yeah, scale Yeah, it's a whole operating system, not just a CRM, is it? It's a whole point. Yeah, it's, and yeah. It, it's brilliant. And they're brilliant. Like, you know, Eloise and the team there, they're, they're great. And they're always there if you need them for anything. Absolutely. So I suppose to a certain extent, it depends how well I know the person already. Yeah. Because I've been in this industry for quite a long time. I know quite a lot of people. But let's assume it's somebody that, I, you know, I'm perhaps first connection to. I don't know that well. I've not managed to get them on the phone because I'll try that first. I'd probably send them a message and it would be something along the lines of, Hi, Hisham. Caroline here from Expian. No, we've not spoken for a little while. So I hope you're doing really well. Currently recruiting for a role that's come in that's requiring somebody with really strong TPM manufacturing skills. I remember what from our last conversation a couple of years ago, you'd previously worked for Unilever, who I know have a similar approach. Don't know what your current situation is, but I think it would be really great to connect because it may be that your experience from Unilever could tie in really well with this role and we could explore opportunities going forward. Give me a ring. Speak to you soon. Nice. Off the cuff, something like that. that. Thank you for that. Just thinking about actually what's going to connect with that person. Mm. And you use the unit, the TP man. That was what you're referring to. What you weaved in. Absolutely. So you know, so they'll they'll that that will just click with them, and they go, yeah, I have done TPM, and I know I know that, and oh, actually, that could be really of interest because I I know it, and it just you know, it's you want to give the the likelihood of them calling you back or sending you a message as high as it possibly can be. Because once you're talking to them, then it's down to you. Can you sell that role? Is that role right for them? Going back to the whole empathy and listening thing previously. No, thanks for sharing that. And then what about what's been your evolution in the phone approach then out of interest? So like maybe like last two years, I feel like the switchboard thing, I don't know how that works now in your industry, if, if that's still a thing or like that still works doesn't work when you say the word headhunting like what i think about is that you're actively phoning people that aren't expecting your call and trying to get a window of opportunity to be like hey i help people like you would you be adverse to having a further conversation to find out if i can help you now or in the future like that's what like comes up for me do you get what i mean i do absolutely and you're right you're right but I think COVID had a a, a, a bit of a, an impact on being able to get through switchboards because yeah. <laughs> people weren't on switchboards. So, of course, you know, going back to mobile phones became a much higher priority. And I think whilst, you know, in theory, it's easier to get hold of somebody if you've got their mobile number, right? I think wrong. I think it's harder because people, if they know you're calling, they know who it is. They'll either know whether they can or cannot talk to you at that point in time, depending on where their location is, or they're on a Teams meeting, or they don't recognise a number and they're very unlikely to contact you. So I think what we've tried to do is actually use the digital space in a much more thoughtful way to reach out. 
But I think you've got to be careful with this because there are a lot of recruiters who are targeted in a way that they have to bring in a certain amount of CVs per week, send out a number of CVs per week. And candidates get quite suspicious of that because what they don't want to do is just simply be part of somebody's data gathering exercise. They want to know that they're valued. So that's why that approach I used earlier can just mean a little bit more because actually there is a live job there. I'm ready to talk to you right now. It's a lot more compelling. I've spoken to a lot of clients as well about this in terms of, look, how do you like to be contacted these days? And the vast majority of people have said to me, just like a digital touch first to set up a call. That's worked quite well for us. I guess where I've seen other people have success in our organisation who don't necessarily have as much experience is that tenacity of following up with phone calls. So don't just phone somebody once. Don't bug them, by the way, or stalk them. But just gently over the course of a week, you know, phone them at different times, just leave them another message, perhaps pop in a text. So they don't feel bombarded, but actually they realise that there is a reason why you're calling and there's something compelling you've got to talk to them about. Sure. And then if you don't mind, like, what do you think about getting across in that first that's such a key moment, I feel like. like So if I've been following up with you, my name might have popped up because I've sent an email or whatever. I finally catch you. What are you trying to achieve in that moment? Is it a similar sort of thing that with the video outreach? Is it like, hey, Caroline, look, we haven't spoken before. This is why I wanted to reach out. What do you typically want to try and get across in that first moment which is it's just quite important to leave a good impression it really is and I think it's about credibility so actually value add is a word that's banded around a lot at the moment but I think it's important so being able to show that actually you're credible in your market you've thought about their business so for example if I was trying to talk to a client in Manchester say who was recruiting for people to support them in terms of their site growth from an engineering perspective interesting news for them might be that other people are building in the area from an HR manager's perspective or a site manager's perspective that's significant because it could mean that their staff are under threat it means that they're going to compete more for candidates starting salaries might be rising so it's thinking is sharing information but with thought for their business actually I thought you might like to see this because it could have a bit of an impact you know give me a call we can chat through a little bit more it's just more than hi have you got any jobs which is sort of where we were a long time ago yeah yeah yeah. so okay client what about on the candidate side I guess that was the final thing that I was just interested in and then I'll be keen to dig into a few other things but on the candidate side as you said like we've got the digital piece going on you're doing the video outreach different things but and then also if we're following up, we've got their mobile trying to speak to them. What what would you try and achieve in that first touch point as well? Is it again just making it personalised? Make it personal. And if you've got a specific job to talk to them about, don't be all cloak and dagger about it. Talk to them about it. I think that's that's what we, you know, because then people think actually this is a genuine job, there's genuine possibilities here you can send candidates information as well that's useful so I do a lot of themed content on on LinkedIn about you know CV writing I've done stuff about you know how to create impact with your CV how to prepare for interview it's stuff that's out there in the in the public domain but if you know that somebody actually you know might be looking what can you do to convert them one of the big blockers for candidates who aren't active in the market is they don't have an up-to-date CV So think about that. Actually, could you give them a bit of a hand? One of the things that I offer is a CV critique. I don't charge for it, but I say, do you know what? Send me your CV. I'll go through it. I'll give you a proper critique in terms of where you need to to make some adjustments, what you might need to add, remove, etc. And you're doing part of the work for them. So you're making the job easier and you're also then building that relationship with them, which means that you're getting to know them better. And if you work in a market that I do where candidates and clients are interchangeable, because a candidate that I place somewhere ultimately will become a hiring manager and then may need people for their their team or may refer us internally, then you're making that whole experience as a candidate much, much better. Sure, got it. Real deep dive then to candidate side, which absolutely love. Like a lot of people are struggling with this, so thank you. For you now, if let's say, obviously, as we said, a lot of people trying to do the candidate side, what channel or what method continues to sort of prevail for you at the moment out of interest like is it all of them is it you know what I'm actually getting way more out of my video outreach which is helping me stand out and enabling me to start relationships with I don't know what like if we're thinking I've got a target to hit I like going into I want to hit my target for the end of the year like I don't know what what are you most confident in what continues to be your best way of cutting through the noise and being able to connect and support candidates out of interest it goes back to probably that personal touch but it's also 
there's an element of having to cut to the chase as well. People don't want to be messed about. People haven't got time. So I think you need to very quickly identify with somebody. You've got a job that's, or you've got a particular reason you need to talk to them. Get to the point, find out whether or not it's actually something you can do together and then move forward. But if you, if you ultimately don't move forward, leave a touch point. I'll come back to you in two weeks because we've talked about this, this and this. Just to develop some continuity. It builds your relationship with that person in the market because you never know where they're going to be and what they might need in the future okay so for you it's more of like just just being strict of your time direct and focusing energy in the right places with the right types of people and turn okay all right so i know you touched on it but i guess to frame this up obviously the the time that you've been in recruitment i feel like you'd be fully aware that right now it'd be very easy for people to not do business development they've got live jobs got vacancies like I've heard it so many times be told to me in the in the past month or so. Like I haven't really had to do BD for a while. What's your mindset right now? Like, are you are you always making time to do business development still? You have to make time. You have to make time. Well, if you don't, it's at your peril. But I don't think it has to be business development in that guise. I think any kind of outbound activity, as long as it's well thought through, is beneficial. So for example, my business development might not necessarily be, you know, cold calling and, you know, smashing the phones, so to speak, but it might be I'll pick 10 decision makers that I've spoken to in the last month, get back in touch with them. What's the current situation? Anything changed? Anything likely to be coming up in the future? And what can we do to help you? Do you need support putting together job specs? Do you need help with CVs? Do you need some market information? You know, we'll send them a, a market report. We'll send them some information on competitors, etc. Anything that we've got. And I've got quite a bank of stuff that I keep because I see articles and I'll send them across stuff that, that helps. So that's my business development. And really, that normally does bear fruition. Um, if you do that consistently, make time each week to reach out to people that aren't necessarily looking for a job or hiring, but are in decision-making positions, eventually something will come through. Yeah. So it's a bit more strategic. Okay. I'm, I'm enjoying getting practical with this with you, Caroline, because this is what, this is what people want. So I know what would be really helpful as well, because you just said around always like making time. How does your typical day, like how do you structure it? Like a lot of people want to know day plans or about how people structure their days. A really common challenge that I continue to hear that I think a lot of recruiters are just left to their own devices to work out, improve, get better is time management. Thinking about probably what your day might've looked like early on or when you were still learning the ropes and these types of things compared to now. What's in your day plan or like how do you ensure that you get the most out of each day out of interest. What does a typical day look like for you? So typically, I mean, first things first, get in as early as I can, get through the emails, respond to people, etc. I think everyone does that, don't they? And then it's about looking at the jobs that we're currently handling, which job needs some attention and make sure that anything outstanding is done. And then it's really moving on to that element of, I'm going to say calls, but it could be outbound emails to the people that I want to talk to that day. So it may be that I've got 10, 10 decision makers that I want to catch up with because I haven't spoken to them for three months and I'll do some outbound activity towards those guys. Around lunchtime, then catching up with you know, callbacks, catching up with candidates. And then going back to the afternoon, then it's it's probably following up from what I've done in the morning. But certainly at that point, it's then a little bit more job coverage. We, where do we need more jobs? And then by about mid-afternoon, I tend to then move more into sort of the marketing stuff. So looking for articles or relevant information we can share with people. I also create quite a lot of content. So I'll use that sort of end of the day piece and then probably sort of post five o'clock it's the rest of my callbacks put together to do list for the following day okay so that's what i was going to ask you so like when you said around like 10 hiring managers do you do you know the people you're going to reach out to that day before the day starts Yes. Yeah, so I guess what I've done over time, and it's very easy to do, so I think anybody at any stage in their career can do this, is start to build a list of people that you can talk to. So they yeah. could be decision makers, candidates or clients, because like I say, they can be very interchangeable. But build that list of people on your CRM or however you, you manage your data and make sure that consistently you've got people that you are on a rotation that you are going to call. It's as simple as that. So 
typically I've got about 100 people within my deck that I will call on a reasonably regular basis or I'll reach out to or I'll send them something. And then I just chunk that down into each day, start to, to dip into that. So, you know, define a number of people that you want to call, make sure that you make those calls or you send out the digital reach so that every day you've actually got something that you're accountable for. Because the other thing in recruitment is you can actually work really hard all day and not get anything for it, can't you? You can spend all day looking for jobs, looking for candidates. If you don't find any, then you feel that sense of what did I do today? Well, actually, if you've done at least 10 outbound calls or 10 outbound reaches to people and a couple of people start to come back, all of a sudden you've got some achievements. You've also then got follow-ups for the next day, people to go back to. Yeah, I find that interesting that over time you've built out like just a a big collective of people that you always stand in touch with or a collective people that you always want to be speaking to like what what's the thought process there and what type of people do you make sure you put on this list out of interest because I, I do find that interesting this podcast is proudly partnered with the award-winning Sourcebreaker. so again i'm going to tell you about a Sourcebreaker customer story and i love this one because It's a story that this person will remember forever because Sourcebreaker enabled them to make their first deal. And we all remember our first placement. So here's another Sourcebreaker story for you. First client signed, one CV, one interview, one job offer, one week. As an apprentice recruitment consultant, I was keen to impress and get my first client under my belt. After setting up a call with a potential client, it became apparent that they needed help with a vacancy that had been live for some time. They needed very precise, specific experience and ASAP. We've all heard that before. I thought, where better to start than Sourcebreaker? I popped in the job title and the specific experience that this client needed, and guess what? Outcomes, one person, immediately available, perfect. I picked up the phone, and told this person about the role, and guess what? It was a match made in heaven. I absolutely love those calls. He was interviewed the next morning, 9 a.m., and the rest is history. Always check Sourcebreaker first. Couldn't have done it without you. If you haven't checked out Sourcebreaker yet, please go and check it out. Get yourself a demo. It will be a great 30 minutes worth of your time and start sharing stories just like this. So I'll give you an example. If I've run a campaign, I ran one recently for quite a senior uh, research and development role. There are people that I had as candidates in that process that actually spend a lot of time talking to these people. You learn a lot about them. I think it's about that respect to them, actually, even though I might not necessarily go on to place them as part of that process, they may still have a requirement to look for a job in the market and ultimately like I said before they will become a hiring manager so if I've got a rapport with them and I feel I can add value we can add value to each other there's got to be some mutual benefit then they'll become part of the people that I keep in touch with you cannot keep in touch with everybody that you've ever spoken to it's completely impossible but I think if you've got a core of people that you work with and who then ultimately will respect you you will respect them you can follow their career Because I think there's a big overarching piece in recruitment that actually you can have such an impact on somebody's career as a result of the actions that you take. And I don't think that should be underestimated. So giving people support and guidance through what we do is a byproduct of the work that we do and ultimately having that influence and impact on on people's lives. And I mean that in two ways. So the the obvious way, of course, is as a candidate, if you place somebody in a job who wasn't necessarily actively looking for a job or you headhunted them, you've changed the course of their life that, you know, without getting too deep. But secondly, as a hiring manager, one of your biggest pain points is if you can't find the right people for your team, ultimately the spotlight's on you. So again, it's how actually, how can you add value to people? How can you help with with that? I have plenty of people that I know in the market who will never use me for recruitment because they work in businesses where they've either got a direct sourcing model or they've got a PSL in place and, and we just can't penetrate that. But actually I can still give them advice, still give them guidance. They'll still help me out if I ring them and say, do you know what? I'm really struggling to find somebody with this skill set and I know you worked there. Who do you know? I'm much more likely to get recommendations and ultimately then be able to find a unique candidate through the relationships that I've built up. 
Yeah, I love that. And I think an important part of this, like how important is niche here, in your opinion? Because I feel like what I really like about that is if you were taking that mindset to like, for example, that senior research and development role that you mentioned, and you did that campaign, like if you're then spending, I don't know, a good chunk of your um, year, like doing similar roles of those, like it's always self-serving, isn't it? You're like, you're, you're helping yourself now to potentially get that job filled, but you're also helping Carol, like future Caroline because you're consistently building this sort of mind map of like great potential people for future research, uh, research development roles. Like what's been your journey with niche? Like are you niche? Do you think that's important? I think it's important if you spend the time learning your niche, you've got to learn it really well and you've got to spend time in it. So in the past when I've recruited people for my team and they don't know our market, they don't know what to do. The first thing I say to them is start to build a bank of candidates. So build a candidate pool within technical this is our market so within technical within new product development or r&d within operations within engineering make sure that you've got a few great candidates in those different pots and then any role that comes in you've immediately got somebody to talk to you've got a cv normally cv to send across you've got that starting point um so i think that also allows you to get your niche because you learn from your candidates and your clients to a certain extent, but your candidates will tell you a lot um, and you can ask some questions and you can get that information so that the next candidate you talk to, you've got even more knowledge and more credibility and it just builds up from there. But I think building that sort of candidate pool first and foremost is, is the key thing. It's crucial. Yeah. And, and always to be growing that again, getting a bit practical here and then we'll move things on before we finish. But I think it's another sort of real pain point at the moment so you're saying, obviously, as part of your day plan, what you typically do is like look at what jobs need more work on or whatever. Like, what's your science behind prioritizing jobs? Because I speak to a lot of recruiters who challenges getting candidates, but and then at the same time, part of that puzzle is not having a clear understanding of what jobs out of their current life jobs that they should put at the top of their list and why. What's your science behind that? What makes you more committed to a job? I don't know. What are the things do you typically work to? that means that they're the jobs that you're putting your time and effort into, which is so important right now. So first priority is anything retained. So where we've been retained for a job, we've got the commitment from the client, we've got that ongoing dialogue. We can also show huge amounts of credibility to candidates when we reach out to them because we are retained. Second on the list would be exclusive jobs. And it's all about, you know, where are you going to get paid, right? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? So retained, exclusive Beyond that, it would then be understanding and differentiating between actually other roles. So a contingent role that's with other recruiters is actually how likely are we to fill this role? What's the fee level? What's the competition? How many people have they already seen? Is the salary level actually achievable for this job? Because if you sit there and you you get a job in and it's paying five grand below market rate, what are your chances of filling it? You're going to end up flogging a dead horse. You're better off to say, go back to the client and say, at this salary level, you're unlikely to be able to find a candidate of the calibre that you're looking for. Are you able to review, start to push back a little bit? If you've got time, show a bit of evidence. Look, I've got this candidate you could have, but they're going to cost you this amount rather than that amount and see what they say. If they're not receptive to listening, I would just park that job and just say, no problem at all, good luck, and I'll come back to you in a couple of weeks ring them back in a couple of weeks, see how they're doing. Focus your time on where you're going to get paid, where you've got those solid relationships with clients. It is pointless working a job that you're never going to ultimately get a candidate out to interview. Love that. So just quickly, so you started with client commitment, basically. How committed is this client to working with me and getting a position filled? If they're retained, very committed, exclusive, more committed than contingent. You just mentioned there around, is a salary achievable? Is there any other... Because I think you go into like client commitment there, obviously you want to work with people that are working with you in partnership, committed to hiring rather than just people that go, hey, Caroline, yeah, happy to receive CVs. Like that's going to be below down your list, right? And then I think obviously you then have to break it down into like the, the fillability of these jobs, right? So it's things like you said, like, yeah, is a salary competitive? Brand wise, are they in a, in a good place within the market? Because I think that's the other part that I think sometimes people can miss. Like what other things do you think about or ask or understand about the position and company that makes you go, yeah, they're definitely going to my top of the list. Is it, yeah, is it things like they're branded within the market? Is it like how good are their employee benefits? And what are some of the other core things that you look out of interest? 
that gets it up that priority list? Yeah, I mean, I think I think brand's an important one. You know, if you, if you can't get anybody to go join the company, then you, you sort of, you're going down a, a very long and difficult road. Benefits is one, although a lot of businesses within the food and FMCG space now are pretty competitive in terms of what they offer. I think the thing that will nail it for a candidate quite often is the opportunity for progression. What is the client offering? Where is the progression? So you're not just looking at the job now, actually, where could they go? So for example, I've got a job at the moment for um, a role within engineering, and it's a sort of management level job, sort of mid-50s salary. But what they specifically want is somebody who can go in and do that job for two years and then springboard into a more senior position. So you're almost recruiting ahead. That is a much more compelling proposition for a candidate and therefore it makes the job a little bit more fillable because you've got a bit more to offer you've got a point of difference culture is really important these days as well I think hybrid working you know people have different takes on this but that's also become quite important to people so again being really clear with your client I'm going to be asked you know what's your work from home policy what can you offer candidates in terms of flexibility or work-life balance those are things that are differentiators um and again, make a job more fillable if you can offer something different. I think the final thing as well, when you take a job on, you must get commitment from the candidate, from the client in terms of what happens to a candidate. So what's your decision making process? How quickly can you see people? And what is your diary availability to do so? So when you send across candidates, you can say, you said you can see them on Monday the 1st. This candidate can make Monday the 1st. And I think you should see them for the following reasons. You've done part of the work. It becomes a much easier process candidates expectations are met clients expectations are met candidates tell me all the time I went for an interview three weeks ago still waiting to hear or actually I'm still waiting on a second date actually if you've got that experience you've already got that evidence to show a candidate they're going to move quickly these are the steps this is what's expected again it makes you a lot more likely to secure that candidate over and above another job that they may also be looking at so glad you said that because i think that's that's the nugget of information there i think because i speak to so many recruiters that have said to me like in the past couple of months or so like oh like it's just a bit annoying sometimes when the client doesn't come back like quickly enough and all of that and i think Obviously, what the term that I've heard with this of what you just said and explained is like a service level agreement, where as part of you taking that job, you will then agree on all of those things or you will at least understand it and you agree to them. And then what I've heard some recruiters do, which again gets these clients up the sort of commitment list, is that they'll actually sort of fill out all of those things that you just mentioned in like a just really simple table. They'll fill it all out, start date, interview dates, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll actually send that over on an email and go, can you disagree that this is what we discussed, this is what we agreed and what we're working to? And what that also adds is like, it's, it's also there written. Do you know what I mean? It's not just a phone conversation. It sort of avoids any of like... You know, when you've had those moments where you took that initial job brief and you found that information, did some work on it, you then checked back in with the client and they go, Caroline, you know what? That person that you sent, it's not quite right because of this. And you're like, hang on a minute. You said that's what you're looking for and it can change. So I'm really glad that you shared that. That's really interesting. I'd go one step further as well. Set up a Teams meeting for the week after you've taken the job on. Look them in the eye. <laughs> Most most people will go for that because actually all of a sudden they've got you've got their attention because you're serious about this. I'm going to spend my time looking for people for you. I'm going to send you people. I need feedback. And if you're looking them in the eye, it's much harder to avoid that commitment because all of a sudden you'll then certainly start to sort out who's serious about recruiting and who's not. If they've got five recruiters on it, they're not really going to want to spend loads of time talking to you because they've got five people to manage. Yeah, that's going to be low on your commitment list. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, what I find extremely annoying is client, perhaps I don't know very well, will ring and say, you know, got this job, we've been looking for a while, no one's been able to find us any any great CVs, it's been with three or four people. Well, where's the appeal in me looking? Pay me a retainer and pay me to headhunt for you and then all of a sudden we've got a working solution. So you can kind of flip it around that way. Yeah, that was going to be my final point before we finish, because I had to ask is, are you finding then, I guess, like top tips on like, yeah, using the current opportunity recruiters have now to maybe get uh, positions on a retainer? So like, are you finding, because clients are feeling like that, as you just mentioned, and I'm sure a lot of recruiters listen to this would have clients say this, like, oh, Karen, look, we've been looking for the last month, six weeks, three weeks, 
we've tried a couple of recruits, it hasn't quite worked out. Can you help? Can you help me or whatever? Like, are you finding like the position right now you're on the market where, yeah, it's it's back to being really candidate short. There are a lot of companies hiring. Are you using that as a leverage to be like, hey, look, if we want to work together, there's a lot of companies like you hiring, looking for these types of people. I'm only working with clients that are really committed to this. So for us to work together, this is how we're going to be doing it. A lot of people I speak to just have, just do exclusivity and then they're scared to ask or not scared is not the right word. It's like, they're sort of like, why would I ask for retain when it's exclusive? Do you get what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think ask for retainer is, and there's two train of thoughts on here and I'll, I'll be brief on them. So there is one train of thought is ask for the retainer and then worry about whether or not you can fill it. So you basically guarantee yourself some money up front. And on that, just what are you asking for up front out of interest? Is it just like a deposit of like X to show commitment? Is it a percentage of the fee? What, what, how have you structured it typically? Yeah, so typically we will structure a retained piece of work in three ways. So an upfront payment of a third of the fee and we'll assume a middle salary point. So a third of the fee up front, a third of the fee on presentation of shortlist. Now I present my shortlist face to face or over teams. So we send through the CVs, then we talk through in detail all of the candidates so that the client really understands why we've put them forward, why they should see them and any pros and cons as well. Don't forget, not everyone's perfect. So what actually the client should be aware of when they see the the candidate, if they see them. And then the final fee on start date or um, offer acceptance normally in terms of signed signed contract back. So that's how we would charge that. So you're obviously taking money off somebody, but what they're doing is they're paying for your time. So they are paying for your time to go away and look in the market because there is also the chance that you could come back and say, do you know what, there isn't anybody. You've seen everybody, but you're working with them at that point. So right, you need to change the spec or you need to change something in terms of what you're looking for. You've got much more of a consultative approach and you have the evidence then to say to them, this is why. There is, we have talked to everybody with this experience within the market. We've talked to X number of people. This is what they've said. Are the salaries not in line with the experience or you just can't get the combination you're looking for? So where can you flex? And by that point, the client's normally fairly comfortable because they've got evidence to go back to the business and say, we've got to change. This is where we need to be. And as long as as a recruiter, you've thought it through and you've found them some options in terms of what that flex could look like, then you stand a really good chance of them taking your advice and progressing through to ultimate conclusion. Um, You end up with with a happy client. And once you've done one retainer with a client, it's much easier to get others because then they understand the process. They trust you. And then sometimes you get to the point where they don't even ask anymore. They just assume it's a retainer because you've done such a great job. You've got to give that added value piece, I think, with a retainer. You can't just turn up with a load of CVs without proper notes, having screened the candidates effectively, present them properly. You've got to give that personal approach. The second point of thought is, so with some clients, they almost need the evidence up front. So I have to do a bit of work to make sure that I can show them that there aren't these people out there on the market. There isn't that capability. So you've almost got to justify your retainer a little bit more. And it depends on your clients. Some clients are very comfortable with it. And particularly if they've done retainers before, as long as they believe in you and it's you that they're going to put their money and their trust in, then they're comfortable. But again, with a retainer, just like you said earlier, I run it as a proper project. So we have, you know, we set out all of our goals, our strategy, all of our timescales. Clients will know when I'll be presenting the shortlist to them on which date and we'll set a meeting at that point. And we'll also fix interview slots as well at that point so that we don't suddenly get delays with holidays or unexpected events. It's yeah, it's just hopefully people can realise this way like that solves so many problems for these people. Like that's so much pain taken away. Like if you think if I'm a business right now and I'm having got a recruiter that's working retained, I have to spend my energy and thoughts like, oh, I haven't had many CVs this week, or I wonder when we're gonna get the first round interviews in or whatever, do you get what I mean? So like, that that just solves so many problems and headaches. Like, it's just so valuable that, like if I can pay Caroline X now and then pay the rest later on delivery, like that's such a great service. Do you know what I mean? And all I have to do is show up when Caroline's told me to. I have to make the decisions that I would normally make anyway, but I'm going to get an even more thorough understanding of like why Caroline is presenting these people to me and the benefit they think they can add to the business, etc. Like, yeah, it just makes complete sense, I think. It does. I mean, we've had instances as well where we've done the first stage interview with the client. 
so the client has that support as well if particularly if they're not if it's a reasonably new hiring manager or they're, they're new to the sector they don't necessarily know all the questions to ask we'll step in and do that with them it's not a problem but you are adding that value I think the final thing I would just say whether it's a retained role or exclusive role or contingent role in this market if a client won't spend the time with you giving you access to the line manager either on a teams call or on a telephone call allowing you access to really get that insight into the job that's a clear sign they're not committed to using you for that job so all of the vacancies i've got at the moment i've had a teams meet with the client and the hiring manager to make sure i really understand that role and then i can talk to candidates about it properly if they won't do that then i think it's a really big warning sign in terms of how committed they are yeah great point Final question. I really like the like we've gone deep, practical into business development candidate. I love it. So I really enjoyed this. So final question. You've been in this industry for a long time and I'd like to think that you've been proud throughout or like you wouldn't have stayed in the industry if you one don't really really enjoy your job Two, proud to work in the industry so like what what can we do to change the perception of the recruitment industry in your view Mm, it needs to be professionalized doesn't it i don't think lots of qualifications is the answer because at the end of the day you can either do the job or you can't i think it's about clients and candidates treating recruiters with respect and recruiters behaving in a way that commands that respect so it's just not doing all the dodgy stuff (laughs) you know speak to a candidate before you send out a cv fairly obvious but i think do what you say you're going to do and always phone people when you say you will phone them i think that's a really important aspect of gaining credibility and, and making the profession professional do what you say you're going to do and exceed it caroline it's been a pleasure thank you so much thank you lovely to talk to you well done on making it to the very end of the episode i hope you enjoyed it done my very best to try and level up this podcast that will hopefully mean that you can take even more learnings from these conversations and apply it to your own recruitment career like always if there are any particular topics that you would love me to cover with future guests then please get in touch with me the best place to reach me is on linkedin send me a message what would you love me to cover with future guests if you have enjoyed the podcast then it would be amazing if you could leave a honest review in your favorite podcast streaming platform that will simply mean that we're able to reach more people with this podcast i hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to subscribe completely free on your favorite podcast streaming platforms and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the recruitment mentors podcast